Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. This is the Media Project, your half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of the week and even sometimes some insight when we're particularly on our game. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large at the Times Union. Happy to welcome you to this with my colleagues. Number one, Dr. Alan Shartok, CEO of Northeast Public Radio, professor, political scientist, etc., cetera, et cetera. Thanks, Fred. I mean, Rex, Thanks. I forgot what your name was. <laughs> Keep it straight. Yeah. You're here with Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and journalism professor, former editor, etc. Hi, all. Happy to be back again. And Judy Patrick is here, Vice President of the New York Press Association and former editor of the Daily Gazette of Schenectady. Judy, you doing all right? I am fine and glad to be back. Good to have you as we begin to feel a little bit of autumn around here. This is a good thing. We have so much to talk about this week, but I do think that one of the things that needs our attention is the publication of Bob Woodward's latest chronicle. This one from the White House. It's entitled Rage. And in this book, of course, This is a result. This is what is so surprising. He had 18 on-the-record interviews with the president, most of it recorded. It's a remarkable display of material, and it does raise a question, why do officials talk to Bob Woodward anyway? How do they think they're going to be able to get ahead of him on this? Isn't that quite an amazing thing? Who wants to address this issue first? Well, I'll start and say that I think that Trump's ego tells him, listen, I got to be president of the United States, the most important job in the world, probably. And I did it, doing it, as Frank Sinatra might sing my way, and I will continue to put it over. And therefore, there's nothing I can't do. He truly believes that. In other words, his ego is what motivates him to do this kind of thing. Now, a lot of people are saying that this was a big mistake. I'm not so sure. In fact, I think if you listen to the material that's coming out, including his accusation to Woodward that you really drank the Kool-Aid when it came to addressing white privilege. Here is Woodward saying, aren't we both products of white privilege? And he said, you really have drunk the Kool-Aid. And he denied that there was racism in America. So from where I'm sitting, he thinks that by saying things like that, He's blowing the whistle, the racist whistle, and getting people over to his side. And here's the terrible thing. He may be right. You know, Judy, I want you to address, if you would please, one of the issues that journalists are now talking about. Alan's alluding to some of the disclosures in the book. One of them is that Trump, as early as February, was telling Bob Woodward that the pandemic was far deadlier than the flu. That's not what he was saying to the public. Doesn't this raise a journalistic, ethical question? Right, and it didn't take long 
for people to start criticizing Bob Woodward for not revealing this sooner. We saw the same thing with Mike Schmidt, a New York Times reporter who wrote a book, Donald Trump versus the United States, in which towards the end he mentions the fact that Mike Pence, the vice president, was on standby when Donald Trump took that mysterious visit to Walter Reed in the fall. So the question is, do reporters have an obligation to report news that is of urgent public concern right away, or can they hold them on to a book? And people are criticizing Woodward for doing this. Woodward has his own defense. He says he's not a daily journalist. He, he needed to vet it more, that he thought he was providing a fuller context for people. They, you know, his highest purpose, he's saying, isn't to work daily stories, but to give the bigger picture. I think Woodward and Schmidt are both in this position because they have a reputation as daily reporters. You don't see this kind of criticism level against people like Doris Kearns Goodwin or John Meacham, but it is something for us all to consider. Should Woodward at least have tipped off the people at the Washington Post that, hey, the president behind the scenes is saying he's intentionally downplaying this pandemic, and could it have saved thousands of lives? It's a really important discussion to be had. Rosemary, what are you thinking? I think it's a discussion that Trump wants us to have because it means then we're not talking about him lying, <laughs> him having those ridiculous love letters to North Korea. It's not an equivalent discussion. Woodward is a national treasure, and we are lucky that the Washington Post has long had a relationship where basically they've hired an author. They've hired a historian. He's not a daily journalist. I don't know that he does have that reputation as a daily journalist. He's a book investigator, and he does long-form journalism. And when he has had breaking stories in the past, he has gone to the Post and given them. In this case, I think he argues well that he did not, for one, know that it was true because Trump is such a liar. He did not have any of the background or the vetting that he needed to make it the complete story it did. And how much should he hold it? We're talking five months. The story has much more impact now. Not the same as, say, John Bolton holding back information about Trump deceiving people on uh, national security issues. It's not the same thing, however much Taylor McEnany would like to make it sound the same. I think he did a great service. How did he get this interview? Partly it was because others around Trump and Lindsey Graham is taking the blame now, urged him to, and also because he is a great schmoozer with power. Woodward is a Republican. He has great respect for the presidency and for the CIA directors and for the other top levels of power that he deals with. He speaks to them one-on-one, -on -one, and he convinced he persuaded Trump to talk to him. Yeah, I think his ego, I think that's an issue. But let us not underplay the talent and the real clout of this journalist. Good point, Rosemary. The fact is, Bob Woodward has some unique skills as a journalist. Well, I brought him in to speak to the Times Union newsroom staff a few years ago. He you know, used to work for my predecessor, Harry Rosenfeld. Harry was the system managing editor for local news at the Washington Post during Watergate. So Woodward came in and spoke to us about being a journalist. And the question that I asked him for our staff was, how much of your work now do you think is enabled by the fact that you are Bob Woodward? And I didn't even get the question out before he snapped back about how it is not because of who I am. People speak to him because, and, and I think this is probably true, I think if anything, who he is is an impediment to getting inside doors, you know, I'm at the Washington Post, but he has a skill, let's call it, being able to persuade those in power that they should talk to him, not just Donald Trump. And we wouldn't be having this conversation, of course, about these revelations being problematic if he weren't still drawing a salary from the Washington Post. As you said, we don't talk about it with Doris Kearns Goodwin. 
how he has kept his alliance with them, but he's basically an independent investigator. And don't forget, this is a man who got the CIA director to talk to him. He got clerks and justices of the Supreme Court to talk to him. He has a lifelong career in getting people in power to talk to him and talk about things that have never been written about before. Yeah, I greatly admire Bob Woodward, and he's a, he is a national treasure, and the book is great. I haven't been able to read it yet because it doesn't come out until September 15th, but the snippets I've, I've seen so far have been incredible. And the main thrust of the book, definitely, that needs to be our top priority to discuss. But we in the media, I think we do need to take a hard look at this. By May, he had put all the pieces together, and Woodward admits he has put the pieces together. He says that if he thought it had been, that there was a public health um, issue that he could have solved by coming forward, he would have done so. So this is a real uh, discussion. I know it's a it's a way of for Trump advocates to detract from the main story, and I don't like that, but I do think this idea of uh, working journalists, uh, Woodward is special, but Schmidt is a, is, a, is a day-to-day journalist. What do they save for their books, and what do they put in the daily paper? Um, I can tell you that if I was on the, on the phone with the president and he told me he was an intention, intentionally downplaying the pandemic, I would have gone to an editor and say, we've got to get this in the newspaper. I don't know that you would have done that in March. He was first hearing it in the course of, a, of an interview. But maybe April or May? I'm not even sure then, because don't forget, Trump did that big switch. I need to look at a chronology. Trump did that big yeah. switch, suddenly got serious. Remember that about the daily briefings, and he was all concerned. He did do a switch at that point. So I can see, you know, Woodward has gotten in trouble before for withholding information. If you remember when his main source, Deep Throat, Deep Throat's family, it turns out it was an FBI official, and his family begins saying, okay, the guy's old and decrepit now, and we want to reveal that he was Deep Throat. And, of course, Woodward and Bernstein knew that first before anybody else. They did not come out with the story because ethically they thought they were still bound by their decision never to reveal it while he was alive and cogent, and he wasn't cogent. And so the Washington Post lost that story, and Woodward got into trouble for losing a daily story that should totally have been theirs to tell. I think he takes these issues of when to release information extremely seriously. And so I tend to believe him when he says he could not have come out with it daily. I would like to register for a comment, if I may, Mr. Moderator. Do <laughs> <laughs> so you see what I mean here? And so, and, 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 and so my comment is this. Is it possible that Woodward has been snookered? And the reason I say that is I think the dog whistle from the president is racism. I've always thought that. I think he thinks that's the way he's going to win this election because this is basically a racist country. Uh, He has this conversation with Woodward about racism, and he accuses uh, Woodward of having drunk the Kool-Aid when he starts talking about his own white privilege, his and the president's white privilege. Once he said that, that's exactly what he wanted. Because if he wins, it's going to be on the basis of the incipient and terrible racism that exists in this country. And Woodward may turn out to have been a part of putting that out there. You know, the racism is an interesting issue for the journalists to discuss because here we have another issue in the recent news from the White House. The president directing that there be no more anti-racist training in the federal government, you know, or diversity training. This arose, it turns out, 
after he watched a Fox News segment, this being a fellow who is basically a defense of whiteness, appeared on Tucker Carlson's program. The president saw that and immediately wanted to bar racial training, uh, let's say anti-racist diversity training from the federal government. This is further evidence of that closed cycle of Fox News to the White House to Fox News that we've seen so much of. Another dog whistle. That's exactly right. It goes right along with my earlier, and I think it could be said on target argument, is that that's what Trump is trying to do. He's trying to get his racism out there to attract other racists in this country, which he thinks is a majority of the country. That's what I think. But every now and then other stories emerge that we don't expect, like since our last program, we have had the emergence of the Atlantic's story by the editor-in-chief at The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, saying with Trump calling veterans losers, people who die in war are suckers. This was clearly not something that the White House wanted to see, and they were able to denounce it in the press until Fox News confirmed it. An actual reporter at Fox News, Jennifer Griffin, confirmed much of that story, which <laughs> has got to be awfully awkward at Fox News, where people are desperately trying to support the president. Kind of surprising, huh? Yeah, the president is calling for her firing, which, again, a ridiculous conflict of interest with a free press. I applaud her courage and for um, coming out with this piece two years after it happened, which detractors are also calling attention to, as well as the use of anonymous sources. And let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, that's a really well-sourced story. It's backed up by other documentary evidence, and that is Trump's long record going back years, going back to when he was a kid in school of saying things against the military. And yet what you hear from Trump's champions are that it was anonymous sources, that the Atlantic has a terrible reputation, has done other negative stories, which I've never heard before until now, and that this story is old. Why are we hearing about it now just before the election? And reporters who cover any administration, including the Trump administration, will go to briefings all the time and write stories based on unnamed sources because administrations, including the Trump administration, won't allow them to name the sources. So the Trump administration itself is using this mechanism of unnamed sources. The public does not understand this. We need to do a better job of explaining. We talk about this all the time, and they're still not getting it. Yep. I want to go back to Fox for a minute. You know, there is an assumption here by the members of the panel, including me, that Fox is a very bad institution. The reason it's the most popular of the cable channels is because there's a single source that people of that political persuasion go to. And yet, something interesting is happening. It's hard for me to believe that a Fox reporter, and she is not the only one, is allowed to go forward with this kind of a story. I don't think that would have been happening under Roger Ailes. I just don't. So as a result of that, one would at least wonder whether the Murdochs are covering their bet one way or the other. In the beginning, Murdoch it was all Ailes. Now, I suspect they may think that Biden's going to get elected and they want to put themselves in a spot where they have some claim on decent journalism. Uh, I have no. a feeling you, you don't believe that. 
hopefully that. If they had any inkling to that, they would harness Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. Well, and think of Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity as the opinion pages of Fox News, and there are real reporters there. There always have been. You know, the woman who did this, Jennifer Griffin, is a respected reporter, by the way, a graduate of Columbia Journalism School. Well, and, you were number one uh, in your there class. There is a, I can see some eyes rolling here, but just <laughs> had, had to mention that. But I do think that there may be enough of a conscience on the part of producers there that when a reporter comes up with a story, it is very hard, I would think, even for a politically biased news organization to sit on a story that its hard-hitting reporters manage to come up with. You know, it's interesting, Brian Stelter of CNN has a book called Hoax, in which he writes about coverage of the Trump administration. And his point is that anchors and commentators are under excruciating pressure, is the word he used, to please the Fox base. And that comes from the daily ratings report. Those of us who aren't in television news are very lucky that, unlike these cable people, we don't see the ratings immediately of how we're doing. It is like an invisible hand pushing the news to support the Fox base, which is the right wing. So it's kind of hard to avoid that if your success on the network is based upon your ratings and the ratings pull you constantly to the right. For no particular reason, I just want to say that the author you're quoting, of course, works for CNN. Isn't that right? Exactly. He does. Yep. Yes. And as you know, CNN is in a death struggle with Fox. I'm not defending Fox. But I am saying that that may be something that should be taken into consideration when you read something like this, when you know that CNN is hurting like crazy every time they pick up that ratings book and they see Fox beating them. Absolutely true. And it's not as though Fox is the only network that is greatly influenced by ratings. By the way, if you're just joining us, folks, and you are wondering what in the world am I listening to, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. <laughs> and we're not only what, but why. <laughs> Why? I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union. That's Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio with investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo and longtime editor Judy Patrick. You know, we should talk a little bit about newspapers while we're here. Something big in our direct area has just happened, and that is the Berkshire Eagle, the uh, fine small daily newspaper in Berkshire County in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, is beginning October 10th. It is going to be, instead of a seven day a week newspaper, a five days in print. Isn't that right? And seven days, right. of course, constantly digital. This is a change, right? Well, it's a major change here in Berkshire County. The Eagle has been a staple of everybody, including mine. When you get up in the morning and you read and you know that this is the one thing that in print gives us the daily news of what's going on in Berkshire County. And I live there. And it is not a happy experience. But, of course, there is the question of why they're doing it. And, Rex, you predicted a long time ago that it was going to happen to virtually all newspapers except for a few. Uh, you said that the Times would be around and maybe the Washington Post and a couple of others, but a lot of them are going digital. Yeah, there are a lot of newspapers cutting the number of print days, a lot doing furloughs and layoffs. Print is very difficult to sustain in the digital age. What's good news, I think, for Berkshire County is that the Berkshire Eagle continues to exist as a seven-day-a-week newsroom, though not a seven-day-a-week print product, because in recent years, we have lost many newspapers. Since 2004, 
about 1,800 newspapers have closed in the United States, according to the research by University of North Carolina professor Penny Abernathy. 1,700 of those 1,800 have closed are weeklies, but 100 dailies have closed as well. And then a lot more are switching to online only or doing things like cutting days of the week, like the Berkshire Eagle. This is just sort of par for the course of what's happening in print these days. So the question, of course, Rex, is, and you're the one who often talks about this, will advertisers pay the same amount of money that they are now with their ad in the paper and print as they would if things are digital? Well, you know, advertising is probably the reason... They cut, they cut Monday, right? Monday is traditionally Sunday, Monday, not a great day for paper advertising. And then that, that makes sense from an advertising perspective to cut that day. They save, you know, they save money in newsprint. They save money in printing. They save money in circulation. But from my perspective, you know, cutting days is bad because you have a gap if you're serving a populace. And people get out of the habit of daily reading a newspaper, uh, print paper. I tend to think that print's going to be around a little bit longer than most people think because there are people who still treasure it and it is a habit and it backs up the digital. Digital is fine for many things and a lot of people, even the 75 and 80 year old grandmothers are getting information online, but I still read a print newspaper on occasion and I find it valuable. But advertising, well, local advertising works a lot better in print, I think, than it does in digital. Well, in announcing it, Judge Rutberg did, uh, the publisher, did make it clear that those of us who are older tend to treasure newspaper reading print media more than people who are younger. Is that true? Certainly. I have a 25-year-old daughter, and she's quite actively involved in public affairs. I have not seen her pick up a print newspaper since she was about six years old when she would pretend to read it or look at the comics. She's entirely digital. She's very much on top of the news. But I think her generation, people in their 20s and below, the 30s and below, the statistics show, 40s and below, these people are just not reading print at all. So it's just reflecting the reality. Now, the national newspapers exist, continue, although the Times itself, of course, now is making so much money from its digital product. But we live in a divided news ecosystem where you have these few big national publications that feed the public's appetite for the national stories, including Donald Trump, and then the local news that people really need to have about their local school boards and their planning boards and so on. That's what's really at risk here, and that's what's going away in so many communities that we really need to be concerned about. Right, and it's print subscription revenue that's fueling those newsrooms. It's not digital revenue that's doing it. And so that's why print is so valuable, and we have to hang on to it as long as we can. I'm done crying and mourning for newspapers. This seems to have been settled five or six at least years ago, and that's what we should be doing now is looking for new forms of getting local coverage, and it's not paper. It just is not. I, I don't see it. Any of my students read it. I don't myself, and I'm old. You do it online, and what's missing is – the business model, and we've had that discussion too. How do you get money to pay for the journalists to find the news and forget the form? We'll figure that out to get it to people. It's collecting the news that's the expensive part. Well, Professor, I want to ask you a question. Rex just said his daughter, who is a wonderful young woman, does not read the print media, but she does read digital media. The question for you guys is how about all those kids who aren't reading anything? That's an excellent question. They don't read news. Yeah. Yeah. 
And for that, you can try to do it in the schools. We've talked a lot about news literacy over the years, trying to build this into the curriculum to teach young people about the value of the news. But you really do need to have this imbued in your young people from their youth, from what happens at home. If their parents aren't paying attention to the news, it's really hard to get the kids to do so. That's very difficult. You know, there's new research that just came out in the past week about the news media's obsession with Donald Trump. I mean, maybe this is a good thing. Trump has been great for the national news media. You know, the New York Times had a record spike in subscriptions during the 2016 election cycle. And here's what this new research shows, that the cable news level of coverage of Donald Trump has continued during his presidency at a rate similar to what it was during a campaign. Far more coverage of Donald Trump at this point in his presidency than Barack Obama got at this point in his presidency. So the national news is aggressive. There is a lot of it going on, but it just doesn't filter down to the local news reports. People are not paying attention to that. You had trouble with that, even when there were nothing but paper products, that people wanted big sensational stories, which tended to be national or even international, and the local things, the planning board and the sewer control would be of interest to a few people, but not a lot, and it was always difficult to get attention. There's almost a cult-like obsession with Trump, and I even noticed it when I was working at the paper. Anytime we would run a Trump national story, it would get more hits than anything local, and he's an interesting guy, and he's risen above celebrity, and I don't get it, but... He's an entertainer. That's what you should get. I'm not so sure it's any different than Clinton, the Monica Lewinsky thing. That story stole readers from every other thing that was in newspapers at the time. It's the big, sensational, and the ones that have a bit of titillation or entertainment in it. So that's always been the case with news. And Trump is a great entertainer. We do have basically an outrage a day or sometimes multiple, let's say, even if you're not outraged by the fact of them, the stories are outrageous. Taking on the post office, for example, to try to slow down the mail so that it can affect the election. Even if you say, well, the post office needs reform, even if you're a great Trump supporter, the story itself is quite outrageous. And people like to feel their outrage fed. And so people are watching. And the result is you have wall-to-wall coverage for every outrageous word in action. And this blots out the space for coverage of other matters. You know, we talk about this often on this program, the existential threat of global warming, the effects of which we are seeing out in the West right now with this terrible fire season, which is just devastating to Western America, which we previously saw in Australia, and so many of these things. Yet we don't talk about climate change because it's drowned out by the outrageous stuff of the Trump story of the day or of the hour. I don't know how to confront that. It led every single national newscast that I was watching, the California fires. It couldn't be ignored. It even pushed Trump back in the playing of these stories. It's a huge story, but you're right. It has not been connected properly to the climate change issue. Governor was out tweeting and talking about, see this, the number of fires, the intensity of the fires, the acreage burned are all much greater now than even last year. Climate change is real. And as for Trump, what, what I'm hearing is how come Trump hasn't talked about the wildfire? He does get interjected into every story. Who are you hearing it from? It's all over. It was on cable last night. It's on Twitter. Well, we'll come back next With time that, and duke it out some more. The time is up. That's the media project for this week. Yep. 
To Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick and Alan Shartok, thank you for your time, folks. And to our producer, David Gustina, and to those of you who are listening, I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. Thanks for joining us this week on The Media Project. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.